Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome to Winning at Work, everybody. This is Tony Moore. And I don't know if it was the the pandemic or what other reasons that we have so many entrepreneurs that are coming into the marketplace, but I keep seeing new brands coming into the market and I'm really intrigued by new products. And my next guest, Adamya Sharma, He is the president of Neopop. He is launching a a beverage company. And he was kind enough to send me some samples. They have a a classic soda, a ginger lemon, a lemon lime. Um, Looks like they're made with uh, like a sugar cane. And he uses, I think it's a theanine and uh, ashwagandha. So we're going to kind of get into a little bit more about his origin story. He does come from food and beverage, so he's not just you know, uh, a chef in a kitchen trying to create something. He actually has a background in food and beverage. So I'm really looking forward to understanding more about Neopop and how he's going to be developing this brand. This is going to be a great episode for those young entrepreneurs who want to get into beverage. Uh, Adamia is going to be the perfect person to listen to his strategies and how he's doing it. Adamia, how are you today, sir? I'm good. I'm good, Tony. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to do this. Well, it is exciting doing this because you get to kind of introduce your brand to a lot of people 
but you also yeah. get to teach people <laughs> what you're doing because there are just so many questions that come into play. But before we really dive into your your brand and then kind of what your strategy is for opening up Neopop, um, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned at the top that you're that you do come from food and beverage and you got your start in mm-hmm. tea. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it goes back all the more, uh, all the way to 2017. I was graduating from college and uh, always wanted to get into food and web, right? And I'm not from the US, so I come from India. And uh, little did I know that none of these uh, major multinational companies, be it Mondelez, Pepsi, Coke, they would hire, you know, graduates straight out of college. Uh, so I had little opportunity to only go to food and web startups. And uh, it was a decision, I, it was a very risky decision to take at that point of time. Uh, but I think it did pay off in terms of, uh, you know, what I ended up doing there, what I ended up learning there. So I worked with a tea brand for almost uh, four years and I ended up leaving them last year. So I stayed out of college, first job, uh, did that for about four years. And I was in the sales team at that company. Yeah, yeah. Head of sales for US and Canada. So you you knew a little something about how a beverage company works, how to build a brand, how to how to sell a brand, how to get that distribution. So, what was the inspiration behind Neopop? How did you come up with the idea? How did you come up with the name? Definitely, uh, yeah. So, I think a couple of things came together for us. Uh, one is I I was always intrigued by uh, you know the beverage industry, particularly the carbonated beverages. Uh, I was in the office in New York and almost around me, anytime you would go down from your office for lunch, for work, for anything, right? You had all these, uh, uh, you know, drugstores, you had these delis, bodegas, and every couple of weeks in New York City, you could see some new brand launching, right? And that space in particular really excited me, not just for the sheer amount of, uh, you know, exits that you see in the industry, but also just the kind of hustle you see and the new products that you end up seeing. And from the consumer point of view, which is what I find the most interesting about the US CPG ecosystem, right? The consumers are really wanting to adopt newer trends, adopt newer ingredients, adopt newer lifestyles, uh, you know, into their health and wellness regime, which is just so exciting. And I realistically don't think it is available. Uh, you know, that kind of consumer awareness is, uh, uh, you know, there in any other country across the world. So that is something which really struck with me that, uh, you know, this country is definitely uh, where the consumers are there. It's not just about having the right retailers like Whole Foods, Sprouts, or having the greatest investors or the exits, right? The core of the entire US CPG ecosystem really lies on, you know, consumers wanting to adopt new things and really being behind, uh, you know, all the latest advancements in uh, science and technology, uh, so, yeah, I, I would not uh, think of launching the brand in any other country uh, than the U.S. Uh, so that stayed with me definitely. And uh, so one thing that I was looking at was, uh, you know, the carbonated soft drinks category, and it was going through a lot of innovation. So the last big innovation that you've seen in the category was uh, when the diet sodas were introduced in 1970s. And if you look at any subcategory overall in beverage, be it sports drink, energy drinks, right, has had some sort of a big disruptor who's challenged one of the legacy brands out there. Uh, But you could not really see that in soda categories. And it did boil down to multiple factors. So I tried to research more into it. And, you know, we identified some gaps. And that's how we're able to, uh, you know, get to the idea of Neopop, 
the other aspect to the entire idea not just it being a carbonated soft drink product a soda uh, but i was personally like working from home and managing the entire business uh, in the us while being based in india uh, so that obviously caused a lot of stress and uh, just so many things that you know you couldn't control or manage while being doing all of that work remotely uh, so started consuming stress supplements started reading more about you know what causes stress and uh, all that and uh, i it just struck me that why don't we make it convenient for customers to be able to take uh, something like l-theanine which is an extract of green tea or ashwagandha which is an indian ayurvedic herb both uh, not just help you uh, calm down and relax and reduce stress but they have multiple other benefits and uh, as a value proposition it just made so much sense that why don't we make it convenient for customers to be able to adopt something like l-theanine and ashwagandha in their daily diets and get that in uh, you know flavors like cola lemon lime ginger lemon flavors that all americans i would believe have either heard consumed seen consume in and around their households since the last 20 30 years right so that's that's where the two worlds came together that why don't we have a carbonated soft drink product a soda but also a soda with functional benefits and uh, we target stress relief and relaxation as a functional benefit for neopa what are you trying to you know build into the brand that the consumer will see this is different this is better this is special so one of the things that i you know learned during my last role was uh, there's there's definitely a fine difference between what really is differentiation right and this is something that you very objectively see play out in the market right if i were to give an example hypothetically you say you know there's an xyz beverage brand and it typically is targeting or is being positioned as abc attributes right and then it's positioned as you know uh, say lmn right so typically what most brands end up doing is you would look at the legacy brand you would look at what kind of attributes they have when i say attributes for somebody new to the industry right if i would look at something like a coca cola i would say their attributes are typically high sugar it's high calories and for a diet coke it would be low sugar low calories and for a diet sprite it could be low sugar low calories and you know caffeine free so these are typical attributes that you know you would observe in some of the legacy brands and what most entrepreneurs end up doing is uh, you know let's just change it to something else uh, that is essentially where uh, you know the actual work of anybody who's the founding team or an entrepreneur lies because just because you change something else and your product is differentiated than coke doesn't necessarily mean the consumers will adopt that differentiation right so you see so many products launching out there you know not just in new york city but across retailers but who are not able to survive beyond those 6 months 1 2 3 years because reasonably the product is not differentiated in the minds of the consumer uh, so that's something that uh, you know we talk about a lot internally and we did spend a fair amount of time speaking to consumers on what they expected from a 21st century soda so it was less about you know what we knew of what we assumed about the category but more about let's ask people what they want in a 21st century soda and uh, you know some ideas tended to uh, you know flow from there so just to give an example that definitely natural sodas are not new to the category so we had to be a natural plus one in that sense that you can't just be launching a natural soda today and assuming that it's going to be differentiated enough 
right? So there are enough natural soda out there, but uh, most of them typically have high amounts of sugar. Uh, so that was a big thing for us that if it has to be natural and organic, it has to be crafted using natural and organic ingredients. But at the same time, we have to control the amount of sugar, we have to control the amount of calories and really pro- make a product that, you know, I personally won't hesitate to consume myself. So a lot of those, uh, you know, customer interviews that we did ended up creating some insights and we basically use those insights to not just formulate the product, uh, but also use that on our packaging. So to anybody listening this, I would just strongly, strongly suggest to really deep dive on not creating differentiation for the heck of it, but uh, creating differentiation, which is actually valuable to the consumer. And uh, trust me, it takes years. Sometimes it takes years to figure out, but slight changes in positioning, slight changes in those attributes, and you can just see the brand to skyrocket. So that's definitely something that, you know, we talk about a lot internally. What other consumer trends did you uncover? I think a couple one, I, I can definitely share two which are coming to my mind. The first one, which if you look, uh, you know, basically look at the entire national and organic industry in the US, you would see brands essentially, you know, the one of the first few brands which started to emerge in this sector, you know, brands like something like a Stonyfield or uh, the earliest, earliest brands in the categories that they represented, right? They always stood for natural and organic. Uh, Now, that probably, I think, ended anywhere from uh, 2010 to 2015 because there were already in every category a natural and organic brand which did exist, right? Uh, In the last couple of years, what I've observed is more or less every category is seeing some sort of a functional brand coming in and trying to disrupt the market. And uh, typically, the way it happens is Uh, You know, earlier before, say, 1980s, 90s, all of these legacy brands were dominating their respective categories, right? Right from Coke, Pepsi in beverages or Kellogg, Mars and all of these guys in snacks and, uh, you know, food products. They had whatever kind of ingredients that they were using. Then came the natural and organic brands. And lately, what you would see is you have to be something more than natural and organic, not only just to create function, uh, but at the very fundamental level. Uh, consumers are now starting to realize that food should do much more than just nutrition for you, right? And uh, for a lot of them, uh, function in a way solves for that, right? So in beverages, you would think that something like an energy drink or a sports drink is better in a way for you than say just plain water. For us, it wasn't that we eliminate all the bad in soda, but why don't we add something more positive in it in terms of, uh, you know, LTN in an ashwagandha. And you would see this play out in categories like healthy cereal in which, you know, nobody had expected that healthy cereal could also potentially have protein. But now you see brands adding protein in there. So it's not just eliminating, you know, all the carbs, all the sugar, but it's also about adding fiber, adding protein. So that's one thing that, you know, at a very bird's eye level, I think is happening across all categories, that almost all categories are getting functional. Consumers are expecting much more from their food and beverage choices than not just having anything negative. They want more. Yeah, that that's great. Uh, you're right. The functional trend is what you're capitalizing on and you're going to give them, as you said, natural plus one. In your case, maybe natural plus one plus two. Now, mm-hmm. take us into the entrepreneur mindset. Take us all the way back. You haven't even created your product. You're still researching attributes. You've now come up with an idea that you want to explore I want you to 
lay everything out for that new beverage entrepreneur. Talk, walk us through those early days, those steps that you were taking all the way to where you are now. Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, I can only share my journey. I'm not even sure if uh, it's the right journey. Well, but see, that's the, the right beauty part. of this. But that's exactly why we're having this conversation because it's working for you. And I do believe that people can learn from this. Super, sure. Uh, happy to help. So what we did was, uh, you know, again, going back, because I did not have any specific experience about the carbonated soft drinks industry, right? And uh, I had not worked in the industry to know anything about what consumers expect from the category while they consume it, right? Uh, what we st started doing was just floating out surveys. And the first couple of surveys were really objective that, you know, what time of the day do you consume the beverage, uh, right? Is there any particular occasion that you typically end up consuming the beverage? Is there any particular food that you, you know, pair with your sodas, right? Has your soda consumption changed over the years? How does your parent think about soda? How do you think about soda for your kids, right? So some very generic observations started to flow through a survey like that. And uh, then we started to speak to people in terms of interviews, and I think a lot of insights or a lot of questions that we had got answered through that. Uh, so that is one fundamental approach which got us a lot of clarity on, you know, what consumers expected. And not just clarity, it helped us prioritize in terms of attributes. What are the attributes that consumers were looking for more versus, you know, which were probably not as important. Uh why I say this is because sometimes if you start to look at, you know, brands, right, you would have your own assumptions that, okay, you look at an XYZ beverage set at a Whole Foods and compare that to an XYZ beverage set at, uh, you know, something like a, a conventional retailer. And you would start to draw some observation and assumptions from there. But it could happen that the consumers really don't care about that, right? So I think for us, ground zero, uh, what we could do was go to consumers and really try to identify why they were consuming soda, why were they not consuming soda, how had their consumption habits changed, and basically distill insights from that. What we ended up doing through those interviews is uh, it essentially, like the results from those interviews essentially helped us in two ways. One is to really guide us in the product development uh, because uh, product development also is in a way really tricky because uh, when it comes to formulating a product in a lab, right, and just taste testing on your own, there is so much subjectivity into it, right? If you don't have a very clear North Star, you'll not be able to, you know, finalize on something. So finalizing something like low sugar is very easy. But, uh, you know, if I were to tell you, how do you or how close do you want to be to an XYZ beverage brand? Or how close do you want to be to them in terms of taste versus say functionality. So a lot of those insights that came from consumer interviews, we actually distilled and leveraged that in defining the true North Star for us in product development and also leverage those insights in terms of prioritizing which attributes come where on our packaging. And it is definitely an iterative process, but uh, uh, one big caveat when it comes to launching a beverage is it's extremely ridiculously expensive to be able to launch a product right so yeah tell us more about of, that because i've had other people on and i've heard big numbers i've heard you know five million i've heard or a million five million i've heard different things but i want to go back yeah. to one thing before you answer that i love what you said about the north star <laughs> and that's very metaphoric you know you you had your eye set 
you knew <laughs> where you were aiming. And I, I think that mm -hmm. is, I think that's fantastic. All right. So tell us more about the um, financial commitments up front. Yeah, so it really could vary a lot and really depends on, uh, you know, what kind of uh, fundraising efforts have you, uh, you know, have been backed uh, into the company, right? So you could typically bootstrap is, which uh, is, you know, what we are doing, right? And just just launching the product in terms of working capital could be, uh, you know, big amount of money. And primarily that is driven by high MOQs, right? So your cost to produce a beverage is probably going to be less than a dollar overall, right? Because you could assume typically all beverages on an average sell for about $2 on shelf, right? So cogs roughly more give or take across all beverages is going to be less than a dollar. So, you know, it doesn't sound really a lot, but if you were to produce 10,000 of those cans for a single run, right? Imagine now you're just spending $10,000 per flavor on a product. And just imagine that what if it doesn't sell? Now you have to dispose of 10,000 cans and again produce 10,000, right? So at a very fundamental level, because of the high MOQs and particularly in carbonated beverages, uh, you know, the high MOQs really tend to, uh, you know, swell up costs very quickly. And I think more or less all the ecosystem players understand this very well, right? So they would not give you a lot of leeway in terms of, uh, you know, accommodating that, okay, you're a bootstrap brand, let's lower the MOQs, but their machineries are set up like that. All other brands are typically following all of those MOQs. So you really can't come in as a challenger brand and say, okay, you know, why don't you do a thousand cans for us? So that's not possible. And uh, because you're having to produce, say, uh, you know, 10,000 cans at once, one flavor, if you're doing three, four flavors, that 30, 40,000 cans. Now imagine, you know, anything goes wrong in production, anything goes wrong in packaging, anything goes wrong in the product, right? You're just having to wipe off all of that inventory with no sales, which is a dead loss to you. And specifically as a bootstrap brand, that really hurts the core of your existence because you're like, that's all of our hard-earned savings. So slightly difficult, I would say, to be able to, you know, bootstrap it all the way when it comes to beverages. That's why uh, you rarely see beverage brands essentially, you know, bootstrap. And this is just mere product, you know, when it comes to uh, hiring people, obviously there's a cost attached to it. If it comes to branding and field marketing, which are again two uh, big expenses, specifically branding, which you need to invest on earlier, that again could range from anywhere from 10 to 20, 30 grand uh, for small agencies going up to 70, 100, 150 grand for bigger agencies. Uh, again, field marketing, having doing sampling, demos, activations, uh, doing events, all of that not just costs, you know, mere product, but it costs people's time. It costs, you know, paying some fees to the events organizers. So very quickly, the cost can swell up. So for us, like, I think uh, what we were really clear about is uh, let's, let's launch it in the market and learn more from the market and the consumers by eliminating some of the risks that we could have done, you know, through research. So just to, just for somebody to understand, uh, if you're launching a beverage product today, if you're launching any food or beverage product today in the market, right, what is fairly, fairly obvious is nobody's going to consume 20 grams of sugar in the product, right? You have to have low sugar. So if you don't understand that, go and speak to consumers. They'll tell you very objectively, nobody's looking for a product with 20 grams of sugar, right? So avoiding those big pitfalls while doing consumer research is something that can save you a lot of money because if you produce 20,000 cans, 30,000 cans with 
20 grams of sugar, nobody's going to buy it. And that is something that you could have just avoided by, you know, speaking to more consumers. So a lot of those pitfalls you can avoid and those risks that you can avoid. Uh, but then it really boils down to understanding the minute details of how consumers behave in a setting where they have to pay for a product, which is definitely much different than when they're just interviewing with you, uh, you know, on phone. So that's that's something that, you know, you could look at eliminate as much risk as you can by avoiding all the most basic things like, you know, artificial ingredients, high sugar, uh, you know, high calories, high sodium, all those things you could avoid. But then you really start to launch. Then you basically do your production and start to launch and, uh, you know, hear from the market and for the right rate. So that's that's how we've been doing it. So how, talk to us about your strategy for getting it into whether it's convenience store, gas store, or gas station, um, you know, small retailers. Talk yeah. to me about how you're presenting, getting it in front, getting it on the shelf, what kind of data that you're giving them, what kind of research you're giving them to show, you know, that consumers like the product. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've or, gone or maybe your e-com, I shouldn't just assume. So I, again, I should ask, I should have asked more about, uh, you know, the, the business model. Is this, is this e-com only? No, not right now. Okay. So okay. we definitely, our major focus is in retail. We do have an e-com presence, right? We do a sell through a website, uh, but, as, as a beverage brand, the economics just doesn't work. When it, it doesn't. It's to just eats. too expensive, right? Yeah. The shipping. It's just too expensive. To ship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think if there's there's a lot of age-old adages when you uh, speak to beverage entrepreneurs or, you know, head of sales, VP of sales and beverages, or you listen to their talks on BevNet. And uh, one of the things I learned early on was uh, don't go, you know, mile wide and inch deep, but go inch wide and mile deep. And very simply, what you mean by that is don't go to like 10 regions, don't go to 10 uh, states, don't go to 10 channels, pick one region, pick at max one or two channels. And it really also depends on the kind of team that you have backing it, right? And given that I was the only salesman in the company doing this for us uh, at the beginning, right? It was always about picking one city, one geography, and really focusing on how can we drive repeat buys at that particular store. Uh, so we chose New York City as a launch market. We chose, you know, typically two or three channels. You could say we're available at supermarkets, relatively small supermarkets. You don't have a large, uh, you know, big supermarkets in the city. Uh, then the second category could be natural and health food stores, which there are a bunch of in New York City, really loyal consumer base. And the third sub-channel that you could call is... Uh, you know, small convenience stores, small uh, corner deli shops, which are also plenty in Manhattan, Brooklyn and Queens, and really focus on that. So you could either pick a region and go with like different channels in that region, uh, which is relatively easier to do in a market as concentrated as something like a New York City market. Or uh, you could also look at, say, let's pick convenience and start to look at not just New York City, but Northeast. Uh, but a lot of uh, what the first one to two years for an entrepreneur in the beverage industry or any CPG category, I think really boils down to launching in the market, learning very quickly, iterating, and then scaling. Uh, because it's, it's you know, how, how do I put it? If, if uh, you know, brands as big as a Coke or a Pepsi, they launch, uh, you know, products every year, 
And it's backed by millions of dollars. It's backed by all the research, all the marketing, and still a lot of those products don't take off. So you really are having very low odds of success. But at the same time, you can further improve your odds by just, you know, listening to the consumers and iterating. So it should never be that, okay, you know, you launch something and that's going to be your hero product. And that's what is going to take you to a billion dollar brand. It's always about launching the product, hearing from customers, hearing from the trade, what they are saying, what the customers are saying, pulling all of those things together, going back to your lab, changing the product, changing the packaging, changing the branding, iterating and keep iterating till the time, you know, organically you see month on month, your uh, velocity is growing at the store level. Yeah. And it looks like you are now into distribution, I imagine, if you've got these three different channels that you're managing. Yeah, so we currently focus on the New York City market. Uh, the way it started for us was, uh, you know, as as crappy as it could get. Uh, so I had a backpack. I would take two cases in my backpack and literally deliver to the stores. So just to may, uh, answer one of your earlier questions, how did we end up getting into, uh, you know, the first 20 doors? It was just me walking into a store, pitching to the store manager, the owner, the buyer, uh, of what Neopop stood for, how we could be differentiated, why it mattered to consumers, and uh, basically get the product on shelf. And we started to see that, you know, stores started getting sold out of it. Then we started to get reorders. And, you know, little by little, little by little, over time, it started to grow beyond a point which, you know, I could not just continue to. You only had one cases. backpack. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like it's like the role of a distributor is not just to, you know, deliver product, but it's also to collect payments. It's also to basically help you get into more stores. And that's where we ended up uh, starting to work with a smaller distributor. So that's been about a month. Uh, but yeah, we're working with one distributor and focused on uh, growing the brand in the New York City region. That's great. I really love the the origin story and your approach to data and consumer you obviously put a lot of emphasis on making sure that you're giving them, you know, what they want. And as you say, an inch wide, mile deep, I've heard that expression before. And I think you're uh, exemplifying that and, and you're pushing that out. Like I said, I really enjoyed the samples you sent me. I thought they were quite good. And I was surprised at how low sugar. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, tell me more about the about the product. So, is it is it just sugar cane that you're using? Is there anything else that you're using to sweeten it, or is that the the main? Yeah, so we're using uh, six grams of organic cane sugar, and we use a little bit of stevia, and uh, that's that's essentially to still get the same amount of sweetness that consumers expect from their sodas, uh, but really, you know, not contribute to any calories. So it's it's a balance between uh, sugarcane and stevia. When you were researching sugars, um, other than stevia and sugarcane, I'm just curious, what other um, ingredients did you uh, experiment with? Because I know there's so many choices out there for, for sweetening. Uh, yeah, definitely. When it comes to natural sugars, I think uh, you definitely have cane sugar, which, uh, you know, is, you know in, is, is present in some of the sodas. So I think consumers are, uh, in a way, you know, they are familiar with their taste profile of what a sugarcane is. It's slightly different from a regular sugar. Uh, and in the category, like sugarcane has not been existing in the soda category, at least for the last 30, 40 years since the invention of high fructose corn syrup. Uh, so sugarcane is something we experimented with. Uh, stevia definitely was the number two choice. Uh, 
Then we also had options, something like a monk food. Uh, we had options, uh, erythritol. And the good part about erythritol now, at least, is uh, you have organic erythritol in the market. So there was a lot of concern earlier that erythritol is sourced from corn and corn is a big non-GMO like GMO crop, right? So it, it has to be organic for it to really have that clean label uh, positioning Correct. that a lot of brands uh, aim for. And you also have now started to see allylose coming up uh, in products. So we did experiment with all of them. Uh, you know, every everything has like a slight positive and a slight negative. Yeah, I know. Food. I know. And supply yeah. chain and cost and, you know, how, how it formulates. I grew up with sugar yeah. cane, so I like that it had the sugar cane. And for me, I don't want to taste any kind of chemical. You know, I don't mm-hmm. like any of that aftertaste. And that I thought that's what was really nice you know, about, about Neopop. And I thought the, the ginger lemon, the lemon lime were, were, um, probably my, my favorites. I do, I did like the classic soda. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, um, I've heard people say on your website, it kind of reminded them of diet Coke. I don't know if that's, if that's true or not. I don't drink diet Coke. If I'm going to drink a soda, I don't drink diet. I'm just going to drink, you know, I'm just going to drink a soda because it's got the chemical flavor. And that's what I liked about Neopop is that it, it didn't have that didn't have that aftertaste so it was, it was quite nice well it's great it's a great brand introduction i'm so glad we had a chance to finally connect with amya and kind of go through your your strategy and how you're doing i mean you're really really uh early in the game and that's why it's kind of exciting to talk to you now and so mm-hmm. we can kind of check back in and see how you're doing how you're growing and what the strategies are and um you know get people introduced to uh, neopop thank you Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and, you know, giving us an opportunity as a young brand and as a first time entrepreneur uh, diving into the beverage industry because uh, it uh, there's one thing that I can tell anybody who's looking to get into it is uh, it definitely seems very exciting from the outside. Uh, it does have its, uh, you know, sheer amount of high competition uh, when you start to really get to the market because uh, I what I observed before while I was in the not in the industry that you know every few weeks I would go to the same store or a deli that I had uh, next to my office I would see new brands but you know for me that was an exciting thing because I could get to try their products as a consumer but when you're an entrepreneur and you know you have your brand on that shelf you're literally competing for that shelf space every couple of weeks right and New York City is just that very very competitive market specifically for beverages right so it, it's daunting in a way but it's also exciting that if you are able to command that shelf space for you know a couple of months you really strongly should believe that you know you have something out there that consumers are repetitively buying and uh, that's that's a great sign of product market fit so yeah uh, yeah it's great advice it's a great it's, it's great advice and you know starting in a big city like that it gives you that instant credibility instant feedback you know if it needs to be taken out behind the barn and shot as uh, Mr. Wonderful would say on Shark Tank (laughs) (laughs) or taken home and enjoyed. So uh, Adamia, thank you so much for joining us here today on Winning at Work. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for having me and have a great rest of the weekend.